issue is to learn how to walk with all these wires attached. It's like kind of like walking into a hotel room full of tubes and all of them ending, you know, in you. Um, Winston, thanks for uh, the introduction and thank you for uh, inviting me back. I'm somewhat surprised that after our session a couple of years ago that some of you would uh, venture back. I had, uh, I did at one of these Why Go to Work seminars, uh, I can't even remember which city it was one time, and the guy said uh, about an hour into the seminar, he said, you mean I paid $75 to, to come and have you beat on my head like this? I said, well, do you think it would have hurt less if you got it for free? <laughs> so, <clears throat> Well, Jack, I appreciate the um, devotional. Because I was going to ask the question also of you men as to how many of you had a hard time making a decision to be here. Um, the uh, Why is it so hard for us as men to not work? Why is it that we feel that we have to work all the time? Is there any correlation between um, our, our need, our, uh, the feeling that we need to, to be at work, and our ability to trust God to meet our needs? And I appreciate the fact that you guys have, have taken a day out of your business life to invest in something like this because it is a step of faith. You're trusting God to make up for that somehow, um, continue to meet your, your needs despite the fact that you're not there to, to uh, tend to the shop. Uh, as Winston said, I've been involved in, for about 25 years in, in ministry uh, as a vocational Christian worker. And I want to say to you that this issue, which is, is a difficult issue to address, uh, of all of the issues that I've ever dealt with men on an individual basis, the, the issue of money has probably been one of, one of the hardest. In my opinion, it's probably one of the major hurdles. I've seen more men grow in the faith and get to, to a plateau and, and, uh, and fail to come to grips with the issue of giving and stewardship and how to use uh, God's resources. And they just stay there for years. It's, it's just a major hurdle. It's a, and, and, and it is a stumbling block for a lot of guys in terms of going on uh, in their walk of faith. Uh, well, you have an outline, and this outline is, uh, is for an eight-hour format. So some of these things we'll skip, some we'll condense. But at least you'll know um, where we're going during the day. And I'll try to, this morning, uh, keep you uh, apprised of where on that outline we are. Um, I do want to spend some time with you uh, on this chapter 6 of 1st. And so on. Uh, I want to talk about giving and I want to talk about debt. And, and so we'll just, we'll just trust God during the, the time that we have to get as far as we can. Now, some of you, if you will turn to the little diagram in here, the little illustration from the Why Go to Work seminar, I'm just briefly going to relate what the, the material we're going to cover today to this diagram because uh, I use this diagram to launch into a lot of different topics. Uh, those of you who were here a couple of years ago will recognize this. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go into the world and make disciples. Now, as we uh, seek to do this, it, it appears to me that men seem to end up, or, or people, the people of God, seem to end up in either one of two extremes. That is, they tend to move toward insularity. 
not isolation from the world, but insularity, insulating themselves from the world. You can't isolate yourself from the world and be a businessman because the, the, the world is where you've got to go and make money, or so it would seem. But we can definitely insulate ourselves. A lot of uh, Christians uh, go into the marketplace just long enough to attend to those financial matters, not realizing that they're using people to their own end simply to make money, and then they run back to their little huddles uh, and hold hands and sing, we're one in the spirit. Uh, they realize there's a lost world out there, but they end up uh, tossing gospel grenades over the wall. Um, so they're in this little fortress, you see, and um, they pay, pay other people to go and do it, and uh, they, they try to keep them to maintain their own level of comfort. I don't know about you, but I've discovered about trying to evangelize the lost that it costs me my level of comfort. In other words, most evangelism by, the, by most uh, institutions today is aimed at reducing the level of comfort for the unbeliever while sustaining the comfort level of the believer. And that's why those, those of you who are involved in the, in the ministry of CBMC understand that we try to evangelize uh, those who, are, who don't know uh, Jesus Christ personally in the business world by maintaining their level of comfort and increasing the level of our own discomfort. Now, in this case, however, if you, if you fall into the trap of insularity, you insulate yourself from those very people that need to hear what it is you have to say. You fail to be salt and light in the world, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be in the world. You'll end up with a message. Oh, my gosh, you, you, I mean, you came to the seminar. And maybe you've been to the seminar where you get the blue notebook and the white notebook and the red notebook and you've got the green one. You've got them all lined up on the shelf. You've been to all the seminars. But the problem is, you know, uh, the filling up of the notebooks is not, not the objective. Else the uh, invention of the photocopy machine would have, uh, would have uh, put us all, uh, further ahead in the ministry. The objective is not to transfer the contents of your notebook to somebody else's or his to yours. It's to reach people for the kingdom. So you may have an audience. You've got all this material. You're filling up the notebooks. But if you insulate yourselves, you have no audience. On the other hand, there's another group of men that do move out into the world, realizing that there are lost people there. They do begin to identify with the lost, befriend them, and uh, begin to genuine, genuinely relate to them, develop relationships with them, and seek to share their faith in that, uh, in that sort of lifestyle environment. And the danger there is what's covered by Paul in 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who's chosen him to be a soldier. You risk entanglement on that, on that other extreme. That is, it becomes an issue of who's influencing whom. You can't tell the Christian from the non-Christian. Um, and in this case, we definitely have an audience. If you're out there relating to the, to the unbelieving world, they're all around you. But if you've lost your distinctive as a believer, if there's no difference between you and your value system and them, you have no real message to give them. Now, I've identified several of the entanglers, and this is where the subject of money comes in. If you'll find on the right-hand side over there, there's a box that says entanglers. On the left, uh, one says activities. The activities I've listed, just a few under insularity, if you want to jot them down on your diagram there. You know, I, I put down things like socializing with only Christians. That's a danger signal. This is under the activities, insularity activities. Socializing with only Christians. That's a danger signal. 
falling into the celebrity Christianity trap. Did you hear so-and-so on the radio this morning? Or so-and-so is coming to town, some big name brand speaker. We, uh, we have our own group of celebrities, Christian heroes, don't we? Another uh, uh, thing I wrote down under activities for insularity is paying the professionals to do the work of the ministry rather than doing it ourselves. Let the pros do it. And then number four, I wrote down fill the notebook mentality, that the objective is simply to accumulate information. Now, on the entangler side, um, I have just three. The list is legion, actually, but I wrote down three major ones. I mean, the obvious entanglers are things like falling into sexual immorality uh, and so on. Those I haven't bothered to put on there. I put down things like this. Number one, I wrote down the adoption of the world system of success. Adoption of the world system of success. That's an entanglement. If you fall into that trap, the world system of success has only one means of measurement, and that's the dollar. And it has a business in America has become a giant monopoly game. It's an issue of, of who dies with the most chips. You know, I've got Park Place and the Boardwalk. How are you doing, Charlie? And uh, that leads to the get all you can, can all you get, poison the rest mentality. So if you adopt the world system of success, what's going to happen, number two, is that you are therefore going to develop an accumulation mentality toward wealth. And that's where this issue of wealth comes in. An accumulation mentality. Because dollars is the major measurement uh gauge by which we in America measure success. And as Winston has pointed out in his talk on success, it's not a matter of just how much you've got, but how much you've got compared to everybody else, so that everybody falls into the trap. So it makes no difference how much you make or how much you have or how much you don't have. The issue is a, a comparison issue. You're always comparing yourself to somebody that always has more. I don't know who's at the top. Trump isn't anymore, right? Um, and thirdly, that leads you with to an obvious addiction to work. That's why men are so addicted to work today, because that's where they make wealth. That's where they make dollars. That's where they chase dollars. And that has come about because they've adopted the world system of success. Now, men, this whole thing, if you look on your outline, um, basically I've organized this material into three parts. The trap... Uh, the truth and the triumph. Now, by the trap, I mean the dangers of wealth, those pitfalls of our culture that cause us to focus on wealth and materialism. And businessmen face it every day. You can't go to the office. You can't spend a day in business. That this whole issue of, of try to go throughout one day without thinking or talking about money. It's almost impossible. It's like dieting for, for me. Try to go through a whole day without thinking about food. Uh, one day I got through about, oh, seven minutes. Um, you know, um, the more you, you try not to think about it, the more you think about it. It's like saying, forget the number 13. You know, the more you try to forget it, the more you think about it. Uh, wealth is like that. Uh, I wrote from my quiet time yesterday on the airplane, because uh, I had to, to leave so early to catch that uh, 6.15 flight uh, to Dallas. I wrote this statement down. I was reviewing Matthew chapter 20, you know, the, the parable of the vineyard. 
And I wrote down this statement. The appetites of the flesh are legion in number and insatiable in their intensity. Now, gentlemen, greed is one of those appetites of the flesh. And we've got to, just at the, at the front, I want to call it what it is. It's called greed. Uh, it's not called, oh, I'm just, I don't want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable. I mean, it's greed. That's what it is. And it's, it's an appetite of the flesh, and it's sin. And it's an issue that we've got to come to grips with. And, it, and really, it isn't an issue of, uh, of uh, not being greedy at all. It's an issue of to what degree, because all of us are infected with it. There's, as the scripture says, there, there's a chemical uh, uh, transformation that takes place. When you get a little cold cash in your warm, chubby hand, chemistry begins, okay? And it, it, it flows through the, through the arms, and all of a sudden that stuff begins to feel pretty good uh, and winds itself, begins to wind itself around your heart. And before you know it, you're trapped. So the trap, one of them is this whole issue of entanglement, which we've just referred to. But another one is, is what I'm calling here in your outline the deadly sea cycle. There are four words I want you to, to notice uh, that are involved in this trap of greed. It starts with the issue of comparison. The first C word is comparison. Now, a friend of mine has said that uh, the new favorite indoor sport of America is comparison. And I agree with it. Try to go through a day without comparing yourself to somebody else. I mean, guys, it starts from when you walked in here, uh, little things like comparing what you're wearing to what everybody else is wearing. Um, or uh, when you go out uh, to leave today, you walk out to the park parking lot, and you see some guy get in a, what's the, the, the new yuppie, yuppie mobile? Acura? I don't know. A Lexus? Whatever. And a guy climbs into his uh, Lexus or his Acura or whatever while you climb into your uh, Chevy 2, 1968 vintage or whatever. Um, or whatever. Maybe you've got a BMW, he's got a Cadillac. You walk into a client's office. What do you do? There sits this gorgeous creature who greets you. You say, hey, uh, the one that greets me at my office isn't quite so gorgeous. I think I'll exchange her and get another one. I'd like to have one a little more gorgeous greeting me every day when I come to my office. You look at the accoutrements, the appointments of this, this office that you go into. And it's hard to be in that office without saying, hey, not much, but we do call it home, right? Um, not a bad office. Um, so we, we compare that. You, you go to dinner at a friend's home. And uh, you walk into their house, and you've never been there before. You've been invited to their home for the first time. You know, and you, you feel like a, uh, a farm boy in Chicago for the first time. You know, ooh, not bad, not bad. Uh, doing pretty well, are we? No, I'm just in debt up to my eyebrows. I mean, how can we never really admit it? You know, I'm really not doing very well at all. I'm just in debt, you know, uh, more than you're willing to be. <laughs> There's both good and, and bad comparison. Uh, I think that the Bible teaches that the, that the proper comparison is to compare yourself with yourself and the gifts God's given you. 
And, and that's proper comparison. But it's always wrong. As If you want to jot down a reference, I, uh, write, write down 2 Corinthians 10, 12. There, God says it's foolish to compare yourself with another person because you're always going to end up losing. You're either going to come out on one end or the other. You're going to come out com comparing unfavorably or you're going to come out comparing favorably. If you compare favorably, that leads to pride. If you compare unfavorably, it can lead to pity, which is a reverse form of pride. It's still self-centeredness. Poor me. Now, that comparison leads to a lack of the second word, contentment. A lack of contentment. And that's, I really believe, and we're, we'll get into this when we get into 1 Timothy chapter 6. The reason that most of us pursue inordinately the accumulation of wealth, I believe, is primarily because we compare and therefore we become discontent. We become discontent. Advertising is aimed at that, isn't it? You walk through a mall. What are they trying to do? Make you discontent with what you have. So you'll want to buy something else. That Our culture is set up to cause us to be discontent. And the Bible says we are to be content with such things as we have. For God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Luke 3 says, Soldiers are to be content with their pay. And gentlemen, you're a soldier. Maybe you didn't realize that, but when you became a believer, it was in the contract. You signed on as a soldier of the cross. We are an army. And I like to say, if this is an army, the army of God, it seems to me that an awful lot of people are coming off of R&R, &R, or are on R&R. Philippians 4.11 says, where is the verse where Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, guys, I want to tell you, it's hard. I know what the economy is in your city. I also minister in southern Louisiana and southern South Texas. Uh, same thing down there. It's hard to go around and talk about the issue of money when most of you are sitting here saying, hey, uh, I don't have to worry anymore because I don't have any, any, any money to worry about. But guys, you can be just as greedy and just as discontent in a state of little as you can be in a state uh, of having a lot. Hebrews 13 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with whatever you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And then there are some verses in 1 Timothy 6 which we'll get to. Now that... Some people are too content. I want to tell you guys. I mean... Can you imagine in our culture that guy, uh, you know, a cold beer in front of the TV uh, looking at the ball game? And now there's one contented guy, right? Now, that kind is an excuse for mediocrity. The other kind is insidious. It can destroy your walk with God. Now, that lack of contentment leads logically to the next deadly C word, covetousness. If you're discontent then you tend to covet what your brother has. Now, the only good kind of, con uh, of covetousness I found in the Scriptures is 1 Corinthians 12, where it says we are to covet the best gifts. Crave or covet, as it says in 1 Timothy 6, but as for you, man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. Crave or covet godliness and spirituality. That covetousness then leads you to the last deadly C word, competition. 
Now we're trampling on toes because you can't be in business and not compete, right? Competition. When you don't have what you want, you compete. We compete um, in the business world. And I think we have to be very careful. Our whole culture, I mean, think about it. Uh, the, think about your children. The two areas that teach unhealthy competition that your kids are exposed to are athletics and education. And they're taught to compete. Now, the bad kind of competition, gentlemen, has other people as the focus. It's what the Bible calls an unequal yoke, which we're going to talk about tomorrow morning at the, at the Bible study. An unequal yoke. An unequal yoke is a relationship which has as its focus something other than Christ. You can be unequally yoked with a Christian as well as with a non-Christian. Unequal yoking doesn't mean I, I, I'm a Christian businessman, therefore I can't have a, a non-Christian as a business partner. That's not, not what it means. The actual context of the, of the passage in 1 Corinthians 6 is marriage. Is marriage. Don't be mismated, some translations say, with unbelievers. Something we need to teach our children from the time they're little uh, shavers, you know. God says you may not marry a non-Christian. Now, you may uh, defy that decree at some point in your life, and you may disappoint me. But you've got to remember, that's not my rule, I told my daughters. That's God's rule. That's God's law, not mine. And he, didn't, and he didn't say that to make your life miserable. He said that to make your life better. He said it for your own good. Unfortunately, I should say, in my own family and in my wife's family, we've got lots of illustrations. Uh, in my two sisters and her brother and sister of, of, the, of the kind of marriages where that commandment by one of, one of the partners as a believer was violated. And they are paying the price for it today. But in terms of, of our relationships as businessmen, guys, if you are related to somebody and the focus of that relationship is what you can get out of it or get out of him, what he can do for you, that is, he can increase your, your ability to market your products. He has something that, that is going to make you more money, put more money in your pocket. If that's the focus of the relationship, that's what the Bible calls an unequal yoke. And that's unhealthy, ungodly competition. When you compete and the focus is stomp that other guy into the ground, that's unhealthy competition. Competing with our fellow man. What about athletics? Um, how about playing tennis with your son? You play hard? Yes. If your son wins, are you happy? Why? You want him to win. When you lose you try not to display your disappointment, right? Why do we teach kids how to lose graciously? Because they covet winning. Because they're taught that the objective is to win. And if you ever had any sales training or business training, uh, that's the focus of it. How to win. Um, pray to win. God wants you to succeed. That's a Christian book in the Christian bookstores. Pray to win. God wants you to succeed. Right. Um, God may not want each of us to succeed in the terms of, of the world system of success. It is the will of God that businesses owned and operated by believers sometimes go belly up. Because God is in the business of preparing us for eternity. 
And the objective is to change our values and change our character and get us ready to live with God forever in heaven. And that is what God is doing in our lives today. Sometimes it takes these hard kinds of things in our lives, guys. And that's why if some of you in here are in that state uh, of uh, lack of finances and the business is, is failing and so on and so on, uh, God can still be in that, is in that. I hope you've made him a part of that. So these four words, in their negative sense, produce affluence and wealth in our country. Now, this is, this is the thing that I've been struggling with. You take these things away and our economy would, would collapse. In America, we build walls to keep people out. In other countries, they build walls to keep them in. Now they're coming down, but that's been the case up till now. Uh, that's the way God meant it. It's a tension you've got to learn to live with. And it's supposed to produce in us the issue of hope. Now, if you'll take your Bible, I would like to begin um, going through this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Any questions on those four concepts? The four C words. Yeah, the... Pardon me? Yes, I think there's a bad type of content. I mean, I mean, there's, there's a, um, some people are too content. You know, they're content to be slothful. They're content to be uh, mediocre. Um, you know, nobody ever sets out in the Christian life with the objective of mediocrity. You, you don't just at some point wake up and say, you know what I want to be? I want to be a mediocre Christian. That's my lifelong goal, to be a mediocre Christian. You just kind of wake up one day and realize that you're there. And you didn't even try. Um, so that the negative kind of contentment is is the uh, is the is that which leads to mediocrity. So the, flip side. the flip side. Yeah. Uh huh. Yes. In their negative sense, that is what produces wealth. I, I mean, uh, what's the best kind of salesman? A hungry salesman, right? Um, I, I guess uh, the reason for my question is that uh, uh, I understand what you're saying, but my understanding of Scripture um, would say that uh, uh, that's not uh, the way that God um, comes with blessings to the believer, monetary Does, does God, my question to you is, does God promise monetary blessing to the believer? Can you give me a reference on that? Uh, reference on that? Or just, yeah, a quotation on that from the New Testament? Uh, I think he promises Yeah, you could take a verse like Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all of your needs. But who gets to define what the needs shall be? God reserves unto himself. So he's not saying, uh, he's not saying that uh, he's promised to bless us in kind. See, it, it, God deals with people differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, that's where you get all those promises. God said to the nation of Israel, if you will be my people, you'll follow me, if you'll obey me. I'll be your God, and here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take care of you. It's going to rain on your crops, I'm going to take care of your kids, I'm going to bless you materially, I'll watch over your health, on and on, all of those. I mean, there's... 
many, many passages throughout the pages of the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus says, if you follow me and you obey me, here's what I'm going to promise you. Blood, sweat, tears, toil, trial, trauma, testing. But, he said, I'll be with you. Now, guys, think about it. In the Old Testament, how often did the Holy Spirit come? Not very often. And so, uh, but, but they had all these promises of material blessing. But the Spirit wasn't there. In the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, uh, it's not going to be an easy task to follow after me, but I tell you what, I'll always be with you. Which would you rather have? You want the gold? Or would you rather have the Spirit, the presence of God? Yeah, that's what most of us would say. And so, and so what we do, I'm not trying to evade your question. What I'm trying to say is, I, I, I did say it's a tension you, that you've got to live with because it is the negative aspect of these things, the competition, the, the lack of... I mean, who could market anything today in, in the retail business if people were not discontent with what they had? I mean, who tries to market something and says, hey, I'll tell you what, this is going to last you for 20 years. You won't have to buy another one of these for 20 years. Why do they build in the obsolescence? They want the thing to blow up in three years so you buy another one. That's the way the economy is structured. I don't understand it, but, that's, but I do, do believe it's under the control of a sovereign God. And it's a tension that all of us have got to live with. So what we've got to do is try to, to as believers, live with the positive side of these four C words, which is, is an eternal focus of life, in the temporal world where we're accosted daily, hourly, with the other side, with the flip side of them, the negative aspects of those four C words. Yes? Uh, if we're uh, walking the walk of obedience in Christ, we don't have any wants. Our wants are his wants, and so therefore our self is destroyed or our self is inactive. And so when we find ourselves without wants, uh, and only... See now, what's our time frame? You just reminded me of the time. We're okay. Um, I lost my schedule here at the first one. In a minute, we'll, we will stand up. Um, in fact, this before we start First Timothy six, why don't we go ahead and it's, I've got three. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the question is, do you believe that people build products that purposefully that will blow up in three years? I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it's something funny to say in public. I let's say I will say this. I wonder sometimes if it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, nothing. There, there, aren't, there uh, haven't been many sins that have surprised me. It wouldn't surprise me to to know uh, that there was an industry where they they didn't want something to last very long. I mean, uh, I like to play with computers. I want to tell you, you buy a computer today, gentlemen, you're going to buy another one in less than five years. I don't care if they say it'll last for 20. You're going to buy another one in less than five years. I mean, uh, it, it's, it, I mean, they could build something that, you know, better right now. Say, automobiles would probably be the best illustration of that. My gosh, why can't we build an... I have the first American automobile right now I've had in many, many years. 
I wish I could buy an American automobile that's as good as the foreign automobiles I've owned. Um, I, this crazy car I've got, it's a Chrysler product. Uh, it's been back so many times. I, I've got a folder that thick, you know, with, with things that have had to, to be fixed on that. I either got a lemon or it, it just confirms my suspicion that American cars are inferior to some of the other kinds of cars that I've, that I've driven. Over here. Probably not enough. The good kind of competition would be from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul talks about running the race, and he says, I pummel my body and subdue it, lest preaching to others I myself should, should be disqualified. The good kind of comp competition and healthy kind of competition is where you're competing with yourself. Okay? Uh, I mean, all of us guys have all we, we can do to keep up with what God's given us and what God's put on our plate much less to worry about what God's put on somebody else's plate. So compete with yourself and, and not with somebody else. That way the focus is not on destroying somebody else, but the focus is on you being all that God wants you to be. Compete with yourself. That's the healthy kind. It's, it's probably because you are competing with yourself because you feel like you should be doing more. Something tells you you should be doing more with it. It's hard, gentlemen, I know, to keep focus when you're with a client, to keep the focus on the needs of that client, not just on, hey, how much I'm going to make from this sale. I know that's hard. But that's a tension all you got to live with. i got to live with it. Uh, VCWs, vocational Christian workers, are not exempt from this. You see, the only difference between me and you is how we're funded. I'm funded by the gifts of God's people. So when I sit down with a man to, a man to interact with him and counsel with him, you know, there's always that, see, just like you would, you, would, you would sit down with a guy and there'd be, hey, is this a potential client? You know, for me, is, is this a potential donor? You see, I've got to fight the same battle you've got to fight. We're no different. So, you know, this is, this is nothing that, you know, uh, we're not any of us exempted from the, from the battle in this, in this arena. Back here. Right, let's see if I can restate the question. Uh, how do you move from mediocrity to productivity, activity as a Christian, without sacrificing what? Uh, the secular career, moving from... I don't think that the two are necessarily linked. I don't think... Becoming a productive Christian in your walk necessarily means that your business is going to go on the skids. I feel that, you know, verses like when the scripture says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Men, believers ought to be the hardest people, hardest working people in the shop. The only difference is they're not doing it for what they can get out of it. They understand why they're there. They do it because they understand that, that their work in the, in the marketplace reflects on the character of God. In other words, you are affecting God's reputation in the world. I can't tell you how many businessmen have told me over the years that they don't hire Christians. And inevitably, when I've asked them why, they all give me the same answer, because they don't work. I think that's sick that Christians have that kind of reputation. I have insurance 
men in the insurance field who tell me that uh, they don't sell insurance to pastors. And I say, why? He said, because they don't pay their premiums. And, and when it comes to claims, they nitpick. Always trying to get more out of it. They're not, never satisfied with, with uh, the settlements. Uh, I, was, I was a victim of this. Uh, our ministry foundation called Vision Foundation... When, when I went to get a, a, a group policy, you know, a health insurance policy. And uh, one of the fellows that's on my board of directors is in the insurance field. And the company that we wanted to get a group policy with, he said, Gordon, I'm sorry to tell you this, but they will not sell Vision Foundation a group policy. I said, why is that? He said, because Vision is a religious organization and they made a decision years ago to stop selling group policies to religious organizations. Same reason. Now, I think that's pretty sad when the Bible says that we ought to be the hardest working people in the shop. But, but the only difference is we don't, we don't do it for gain, temporal gain. We do it because God said to work hard and because it's our platform to minister the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's why we do it. We better take our break. About five minutes, just stand. Okay. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. And uh, rather than reading it around for the sake of the tape, uh, so it'll be on the tape, why don't I read it for us? And you follow along in whatever version you're reading from. Paul says to Timothy, beginning at verse 1, Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be defamed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brethren. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these duties. Verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, he knows nothing, he has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among men who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then some translations add, from such depart. Verse 6, there's great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will be made manifest at the proper time by the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this world, 
charged them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. Avoid the godless chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have missed the mark as regards the faith. Grace be with you. In this chapter, there are five separate audiences addressed. Five audiences addressed. Audience number one, verses one and two. Those who have no ability to, to gain wealth, namely the slaves. Verses 3 through 5, uh, the key to it is at the end of verse 5, those who say that godliness is the path to riches, a means of gain. The third audience begins at verse 6 and goes through verse 10. Those who desire to be rich, this translation, those who want to be rich. The fourth audience, those who are seeking true riches, is found in verses 11 to 16. And the last group, obviously, but as for you, as for the rich in this world, those who are already rich. Five distinct audiences. Let's take them one at a time. The first audience, those who don't have much uh, ability uh, to gain wealth. Now, there were two categories of slaves here. In the first one, verse number one uh, you have a slave, a believing slave with an unbelieving master. Verse 2, you have a believing slave with a believing master. Now, I'm going to take the liberty, and I, I think I have this liberty, of, uh, of saying, although you, can't, you cannot make this uh, categorical statement, but I'm going to, to sort of use this in the sense of employer-employee. Okay? All right. First of all, let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Now, the word here is the, that, that's translated master is most literally despot. Despot. Uh, this is the kind of person uh, who uh, treated those slaves as chattel. They were property. They were beaten. They were taken advantage of. They were lorded over. Uh, Paul says to this um, believing slave, honor them. Honor them. Isn't that amazing? God's name was not to be blasphemed by the dishonoring of an unbelieving master at the hands of a believing slave. Now, one of the things I want you to understand is how many slaves we're talking about at the writing of this book. The population of the Roman Empire at the writing, approximate writing of 1 Timothy, of, of the New Testament, most of the New Testament, was about 120 million people. Of those, half, 60 million people were slaves. Now, it's interesting to me that in the pages of the New Testament, Paul never tells those slaves at any time to go get a different job. I'm sure they would like to have done that. We've got to understand, guys, in our culture today, we are among the most privileged people ever to have inhabited this planet. We are, the, are, are among the very few who have the opportunity of choosing as our, our vocation something that we may like to do. The slave did not have that choice. And he didn't say, leave. Now hold your finger there and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It gets worse. Here's a, here's a parallel passage. 
a cross-reference. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Now, a different voice here. We've heard the voice of Paul. Here's the voice of Peter. He says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Same thing, eh? Same thing as, as Paul said. He goes on to say, not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. For one is approved, if mindful of God, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. Now, what's the context of this suffering unjustly? Servants and, and uh, masters. Employment. You ever suffer unjustly in your employment? Of course you have. What credit is it? If when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently. But if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you've got God's approval. Now, guys, um, if we would stop uh, uh, assuming that unbelievers are going to act out Christian virtues, we'd be further ahead of the game. That is, if we would expect unregenerate men to act as though they were unregenerate, we would never be disappointed. The problem in, in vocations today, in, the, in our employment, is expecting unbelievers to act as though they were believers. And they're going to act what they are. When you were like them, you were just like them. You might be worse. When you were like them, you were just like them. You might be worse. Expect them to misuse you. Expect them. Guys, I'll tell you, that's the problem with partnerships with partnerships with, with uh, an unbeliever. Uh, the guy may have some good stuff to bring to the table in terms of your business. And he may be a good buddy, he may be a virtuous man, a good moral man, and as long as the business is doing well, everything's cool. But when that business starts to take a nosedive, you know what's going to happen? He's going to act out his unregenerate state. He's going to protect his own fanny. And if he finds somebody that can do him a better job, you're out. It just happened to one of my very good friends in Cincinnati. Just like that. Had a great partnership going. As soon as that thing started, began, began to go down, the guy found somebody else that could do something better than, the, than, than my friend. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. To what have you been called? Suffering unjustly in the context of employment. Part of the call. Back to 1 Timothy 6. He doesn't talk to the owner, he talks to the slave. Why could Paul say this? Because Paul perceived life from a different worldview. He viewed the temporal in light of eternity. The purpose of life is eternal and not temporal. And that's the only way that you'll understand verse 1. If you are working for an unbelieving person, you're supposed to honor and respect him because the name and reputation of God is at stake. Now, verse 2, we think things would be better. Here we have a believing master. Okay, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brethren. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Now, you would think that this would be better, wouldn't it? This combination would be better. But I have found that in, in a lot of cases, if not most, just the opposite is true. Why? Unrealistic expectations. You ever do this? If you're in that state where, where, where there's a Christian-Christian combination, uh, if, let's say you're, you're, uh, you're the employee. Did you ever let down, you know, you're a little tired, you just came off of a trip or you're having some, some trouble in the family 
And did you ever entertain the idea, well, because he's a brother, he'll understand. And so, you know, if you were an unbeliever, working for an unbelieving master, do you think he'd give a rip what was going on at your house? Do you think he would accept any of your, your excuses for, for poor performance on the basis of you got caught in the traffic or you've had a bad day or spiritually you're, you're, you're dry these days and you're, you're in a state of decline? Guys, what happens is we take advantage of the fact that we're brothers and we let down our guard. And we end up despising that believing master. That's why the Bible says that we should not lend money to a brother. You don't feel as obligated to, lend, to, to repay money to, uh, to a believing brother. Since we're brothers, he'll treat me different. Now, that, that's, that's the state of the slave here. The, the slaves, and believe me, the, these slaves came to Christ by the droves. They were, they were slave converts in every one of these little churches in, all across the, the Mediterranean basin. Why? They were great candidates for the gospel. Because you've got to get lost before you can get saved. You have to be in a state of need and be able to declare that bankruptcy before God before you can ever become a believer. So they came to Christ by the droves. Now some of them thought, see here they were in this congregation, with believing masters and they thought since they were together in brothers that they would be treated now how would that translate today let's say you're in a little congregation and let's say uh, a, a judge is a member of your fellowship now would it ever occur to you that if you've transgressed the law and you came to appear before this judge that he would would give you special treatment because you're a brother now, an observation that, that's, that I have here in my notes you may want to jot down, spiritual equality does not eradicate civil distinctions. Spiritual equality does not eradicate civil distinctions. You're not going to get preferential treatment. You shouldn't get preferential treatment from a brother. If you transgress the law, you pay, believer or not. Secondly, all service is rendered vertically, not horizontally. That's why the verse I quoted from Colossians 3, I'll repeat that, service is rendered vertically, not horizontally. That is, you serve God. You're not serving men, you're serving God. Colossians 3.23 says, in fact, you're serving God since you serve God. That's why you work hard. Not because you're serving a brother, but you're serving God. We feel we have license with brothers. All right? The second audience. Any questions on the slaves? These guys didn't have much opportunity to gain wealth. And there are those kinds of people in our, in our world today. You think God's unaware of that? He dozed off for a minute? God is in charge of all of that. God distributes his resources as he wills, the Bible says. And he's quite aware. And there are many people in our culture who don't have much opportunity to gain wealth. And they're no less godly than those who have opportunity to gain wealth. We focus on the wrong thing. Now, the second group here, the second audience in verses 3 to 5, quickly, those who say godliness is the path to riches. That's taken from the second half of verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw, says the King James, the New King James, and other translations. 
Now, do you think that there are any people in our society today who say that being a Christian, they're, they're, they're in the faith because of what they can get out of it? Sure there are. It's all around us. There are at least three groups that I know of. One is uh, the group that's been uh, tagged as the name it and claim it group. God wants you to prosper. If you don't have it, ask for it. If you don't get it, you lack faith. Poverty is your fault. You're sick, you're poor, you've got a spiritual defect. Godliness, real godliness, will bring you gain. You won't be sick. You'll gain materially. And gentlemen, the Bible does not teach that. It does not teach that at all. As I said, God deals differently with us in the New Testament. And we're never promised material gain. God promised to meet our needs, and God promised to bless us, but he didn't promise to bless us in kind. It's not you put in two cents, God gave you five. It's not like investing. Here, God, I'll put in a thousand, now you multiply it and give me three thousand in return. It doesn't work that way. God says he'll bless you for generous giving, but he may bless you in a, in, in a variety of ways, not necessarily in kind. The second group is the Dominion Covenant group. God wants us to be a nation under God. Then we'll prosper and we'll experience blessing. If you want to eliminate catastrophe, clean up your act. Pornography, abortion, homosexuality, get them out of the culture. If we want to prosper, we simply need to become a godly nation. This group is also an error. Jesus didn't die for institutions, he died for individuals. This culture is fallen and it's going to get worse. And I don't want to care what you do to try to recover the culture, that's not going to save the world. It's going to get worse and worse and worse as I read the pages of, of my Bible. The third group is, the is a political group, the liberation theology group. God wants you to be free from war and poverty and political domination. The gospel is a political charter of emancipation. And I want to say this, guys. Anytime you use religion as a means of worldly betterment, you've missed the mark with God. Anytime you use your faith as a means of worldly betterment, you've missed the mark with God. There are people in our culture today that take the gifts that God gave and bestowed upon them and prostituted by selling and charging people for those very gifts that God gave them. And it's wrong. Because then you've produced a different gospel, heresy. And the Bible says, withdraw from those kind of people. Don't have anything to do with them. The people who say, you simply name it, whatever the mind can conceive, the, the, the will of man can achieve. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Guys, we've got to remember, the kingdom of God is not a, temp a temporal kingdom. Dependence brings us to Christ. But then we want to compete with the world because of what, what God has made. And take, take what God has given us and turn it into some, and commercialize it and turn it into some sort of a commercial enterprise and charge people for the grace of God. That's heresy from such withdrawal. Ah, you say, well, so far, I, I'm unscathed. It hasn't gotten to me yet. Okay, but it gets worse. He'll get all of us in the next one. Verse 6. 
Audience number three, those who desire to be rich. Now, before we even go into it, some of you are saying, oh, it's not me. I don't want to be rich. I just want to live like I was. I just want to know somebody who is. Um, I don't really want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable. You ever use that one? I just want to, I want to make a comfortable living. There's great gain, he says, in godliness with contentment. Now, he just said, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In verse 5, verse 6, he says, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Is, is he um, uh, repudiating verse 5? Do these two conflict? These two concepts conflict? I don't think so. In verse 5, what's the focus? What kind of gain? Temporal gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gaining temporally. What kind of gain are we talking about in verse 6? Eternal gain. There's great gain in godliness with contentment. Not temporal gain. That's where people get off. They misinterpret these passages. The gain here is not materially. If you, if you are uh, godly and content, that doesn't mean that God is going to pour out temporal uh, wealth upon you. The gain is eternal. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out. That's pretty obvious. How'd you come into the world? Wrinkled, waxy, naked, uh, with a need to be fed and loved and cared for. Some of us were fed very well. You know, when you're old and you get ready to depart from this world, you're going to go out the same way you came in. Naked, wrinkled, waxy, needy with a need to be loved and fed and cared for. You ever been in, you ever been in, a, in a, a nursing home? If you, if, if, you, if you don't spend much time there, you will someday. And I'd encourage you, even, a, even if you're young, go, go find a nursing home once in a while and go there and look at those people. They're human warehouses. You know what those people look forward to? Meals. And all they want to do is be, is, be, is be cleaned up and cared for. Maybe they don't have control over their, you know, their, their bodily functions anymore. And, and, and those old people, you've got to change diapers on them, just like babies. We start at this place and we end up at the same place, guys. You exit the world the same way you came in. People in rest homes don't care about their net worth or the latest fashions or their investment portfolios. Or the latest fads, they just want to be loved and fed and cared for. That's all. You brought nothing in, you can't take anything out. But we sure try, don't we? We sure try to take it with us. And so we try to memorialize ourselves and, uh, so that there will be a lasting memory because we donated to something and we got our, build, our, our name on a building, on a plaque. Now, it get, it, he really begins to, to, uh, to get to us at verse 8. If we have food and clothing with these, we, we shall be content. Guys, the Bible defines the level of our contentment, what it should be. And there it is. God leaves no misunderstanding in our minds as to what he means by contentment. And he says the level of contentment that he expects from his children is food and clothes. And I remind you that it does not even say shelter. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. 
And yet today, as I counsel with, with uh, young people entering their careers, getting married, they really feel that God owes them a little house in the suburbs. And hey, it's not just any old house today. It's got to be decorated by a professional decorator, color-coordinated, and full of furniture. I mean, nobody would think about having a room with no furniture in it. And you know what they do, the price that they pay for that little bungalow in the suburbs? Debt. I mean, we're drowning, guys, in a sea of debt. The country is drowning in a sea of debt. And the believers aren't doing anything about it. They just bought into the program. They're going down as fast as the unbelievers. And, they're so, and that leads them to entanglement. These people cannot be available to God. They're, they can't be available because they're so entangled. Now they both have to work to pay the bills to sustain the lifestyle they've allowed themselves to adopt. Those who have food and clothing should be, dis, should be content. Should be content. But, verse 9, those who desire to be rich. Ooh. Now, this language, if you, go, if you go look this up in the vines or in, in anything that will give you the meaning of the, of the Greek words here, I'm not a Greek student. I don't know Greek, but I have to go and look it up in the books just like you do. Um, those who desire to be... The language here in the Greek is very, very strong. I mean, this translation says, fall into temptation, into a snare, in, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. That's pretty powerful language, isn't it? When was the last time you heard a sermon on the dangers of money? This is a vice that is condoned and in, in, in fact considered to be a virtue by the church. Wealth. This is considered to be a virtue. I mean, there's not a pastor in this land who wouldn't welcome all of the wealthy people he could get in his congregation. Now, what's rich? Those who desire to be rich. A couple of other points here on the Greek. Those who desire to be rich. The idea here is an inordinate drive. It gives us the idea that it's, it, it's an all-consuming thing. You dream about it. You think about it. You talk about it. You just, you're consumed with it. That's the idea. To be rich. What's rich? Who's rich? You go around a room like this and you say, are you rich? No, he's rich. Tom says, no, I'm not rich. He's rich. He says, no, he's rich. Well, who is? Nobody ever admits to it. <laughs> Guys, isn't the answer we all are? I mean, co compared to anybody who's ever inhabited this planet, don't we enjoy a lifestyle that, that a few centuries ago would have been royalty? Aren't we all rich by anybody's standards? Even if we compare ourselves to a third world country, we're all rich. Most of you, along with me, make more than you ever dreamed you'd make. Now, maybe you're going through some struggles right now because of the economy in this city. But, but most of us are making more than we ever dreamed we'd make. And if you really admit it, really admit it, very few guys get to this place very easily, probably making more than you really need. And I want to tell you, certainly more than you deserve. 
If, we, if, if any of us made what we deserve, we'd all be paupers. Because we don't deserve anything. That's what grace is all about in the Bible. God says, what do you have that wasn't a gift? So why do you act as though it weren't a gift? The problem with wealth, guys, is you begin to take, you begin to believe your own press. Okay? You take yourself so seriously. You really believe that you have what you have. This is a violation of this verse. That you have what you have because you deserve it or because you earned it. And neither is true. You don't deserve it and you didn't earn it. God gave it to you. And God can take it away from you just as fast. Now maybe you're learning the second part of that equation these days. Maybe God did give it to you at one time. Now he's trying to teach you that he can also take it away from you just as fast. If God wants you out of business, you're out of business overnight. Clients, customers, they all come from God. And if he wants you in business, you'll be in business. If he doesn't want you in business, you're out. Just like that. Because God defines those needs. That's why Paul said, in every circumstance, I've learned how to be content. I, I know what it's like to have it. I know what it's like to not have it. Now, we'd like to think that Paul started out not having it, and he ended up having it. And he stayed there. That's not the case. He had it, then he didn't, then he had it, then he didn't, then he had it, then he didn't. Most of us say, hey, I'd rather stay up here. I've been rich, I've been poor, but rich, that's far better if I get to choose. See? God says, nah, let's, uh, let's, take, let's keep both in the, in the equation. I think for your sake you need to have it and then, then you need to experience not having it. Because God is in the business of producing this quality, which I'll say over and over again this morning, this quality of dependence in our lives. And whatever it takes to keep us in a dependent state, well, God will go to great lengths to ensure our dependence. To ensure our dependence. So, just let me ask you, do you pray more or less when you have a lot? Do you pray more or less when you have little? Are you happier when there's money in the bank than when there's not money in the bank? See, why is it that we derive so much of our satisfaction in life from how much we have in the bank? It's pretty stupid, isn't it? How do you feel about it? How do you feel when you, you reach down into your pocket and there's only a dollar there? Or do you, you really like, are you one of those that really, I mean, you like to reach down in there in the pocket and uh, there's a big wad of bills, you know. Carry a lot of ones around just because it's fatter, you know, makes you feel better. Just touching it, you know, kind of gives you a tingly feeling all over. Guys, the Bible says it's dangerous. Do not ever pray to be wealthy. You are never given permission in the Bible to pray for wealth. Never. The Bible says if you want to pray about wealth, here's what you pray. This is an acceptable prayer. Lord, give me neither poverty nor wealth. If I'm poor, the psalmist said, I'm going to be tempted to steal. If I'm wealthy, I'm going to be tempted to forget God. Wealth is an illegitimate objective. So when you write your goals and objectives, guys, I, want to, I question whether we should continue to write our goals and objectives. My objective today is to increase my net worth, or this year to increase my net worth by X number of dollars, X, X percent. See, that's setting up, the, 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 that's, that's giving in to the accumulation mentality which is dictated by our culture through its definition of what success is. God says that's not the objective. Because it all belongs to him anyway. 
If, if you desire to be rich, you fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, the phrases here to help drive home the point are, dub are doubled. They're what we call in English literature couplets. Couplets. He says, he doesn't say fall into senseless desires. It's senseless and hurtful desires. It's not just temptation, but it's temptation and a snare. It isn't just ruin, but it's plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now see, whenever you see couplets like that, that's trying to help us understand the, the effect, the power of the statement. So it's double. The Spirit of God's trying to say, I'm trying to get your attention. This is dangerous stuff we're talking about. And not only does he have couplets, but he has three series of couplets. Six things to try to get our attention in a row. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Foolish here, by the way, this, this uh, foolishness, um, senseless or foolishness, is the, is the idea of void of reason from the Greek. It means you're, you're devoid of reason. If you want to be rich what the Bible says, you're not thinking straight. You're void of reason if you want to be rich. You're not thinking straight. And as I said, this vice is considered by the church a virtue. We don't define it as sin. Um, the Bible says in Luke 16, that which is esteemed by men is abominable to God. What degree, let me ask you, honestly, you've got to answer this before God in your own heart. What degree do dollars have, what, what place does it play? What kind of a, a effect does it have on your decision making? Do you make your decisions primarily based upon finance? See, I think that the Bible is trying to tell us don't make decisions on the basis of finances. That's the wrong way to make a decision. It may be a factor, but it's probably way down on the list, not at the top where we would put it. Somebody offers you a, a job. I think I'll take that job. Why? Because they offer me twice as much salary. So what? What does that have to do with anything? What does that, that have to do with fulfilling the Great Commission? What does that have to do with spreading the gospel? What does that have to do with building God's kingdom on earth? Maybe it helps you do it. Maybe it doesn't. Are you afraid sometimes that you'll lose a sale or you'll embarrass a customer if, if you bring up the fact that you're a Christian? Those kind of things ought to bother us, guys, as believers. Does it embarrass you to confess to colleagues that you are a believer? It says here in verse 10 that this, this craving for money is the root of all evil. Nothing good ever grows out of a desire to achieve wealth. Nothing. And guys, we've got to start calling it what it is. It is called in the Bible greed. It's called greed. The idea here behind those who desire to be rich, if you hold your finger here and turn to Matthew 6, 19 to 21, this is kind of another cross-reference for you. Pardon me? The verse is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Now you remember this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now there's a negative command, a positive command, and a principle involved in those three verses in Matthew chapter 6. The negative command, do not, do not do what? Do not store or lay up treasures on earth. What are treasures on earth? I don't even need to tell you. It's the default program of the computer in the human heart. You know what treasures on earth are? We devise more means of making money, more financial instruments, more ways of spending money than any, than any culture possibly since the Roman Empire. Um, houses and cars and boats and motors and cabins on the lake and cabins in the mountains and condos in Florida and on and on it goes. And leisure time and recreation and travel and bank accounts, investment portfolios, so on. Don't lay it up. What does it mean? It says don't lay up or store treasures on earth. Now, guys, if you, don't, if you don't understand this verse, how will you know when you're transgressing the command? What does it mean to store them up? The idea in the Greek is hoarding. The idea is hoarding. I, I, I like to, to teach this. You transgress the command when you transfer your trust. You transgress the command when you transfer your trust. Here's what I mean. You transfer your trust from God's ability to meet your needs, as he's promised, to the meeting of your own needs via what you've got in your portfolio. Your resources, your net worth, your bank accounts, your stocks and bonds, your business, the value of your business, etc. When you transfer trust from God's command, uh, promise to meet your needs, and you're, and you're no longer trusting God, but you, you have reserves of whatever kind in case God doesn't come through for you, then you've transferred your trust and you violated the command. Don't hoard it. There's no such thing as saving for a rainy day. What do you mean a rainy day? Just in case God doesn't come through? In case, is that the day when God takes a nap? You know, while God's snoozing, then I'll have to take care of my own needs. I mean, God, you've got so many people. How can you keep track of all this? Don't forget, I got a mortgage payment to make this month. Well, God knows that. He doesn't blink off. He says in verse 20, but rather lay up treasures in heaven. See? It's okay to store, but what you do is you store eternal treasures rather than temporal treasures. You lay up your treasures in earth. You've got to have a, 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 an eternal focus of life in order to do that, guys. You've got to understand what God values. You've got to adopt God's value system. You've got to allow God to work out that value system in your life, in your business, in your home, in your family, so that you begin to think like God thinks. So that when you get to heaven, you'll be what he wants you to be when you get home. See? So that's what he's doing. He's trying to get us ready to, to be with him forever in heaven. And he's got a lot of trash to take out of some of us. Um, I, I, all right. The question is, he said uh, uh, that I'm saying that the world says you need to have these things. Insurance, savings accounts, etc. And that you don't really need them. I want to say to you that it's really an issue between you and God. When, later on, we're going to talk about this issue of lifestyle. Guys, I believe everybody's going to have something different in his portfolio. I do want you to think about it like this. I was going to bring a folder up here, but I didn't. Um, when you got saved, when we get to, ready to talk about the issue of stewardship, 
The idea that I think that, that helps businessmen understand what a steward is, is the term asset manager. Asset manager. You know what an asset manager is. You know, someone who manages the assets that belong to somebody else, right? That's what we are. We're managing God's portfolio, and each of us, when we got saved, got a piece of God's total portfolio. What's in the portfolio? All kinds of things. Your gifts, your abilities, your time, your talents, your treasures, your relationships, your family, your business. All of these things are in that portfolio. And we've got to give an account to God for the managing of his portfolio someday. We're asset managers. So the answer to his question is God may lead us to do different things. One guy, God may lead him. The issue is not insurance policies or not insurance policies. The, the issue is the stewarding of God's resources. And the answer is, am I trusting in those things or am I trusting in God? Take, take this issue of retirement. Retirement's not a biblical concept. It's not in the Bible, guys. Does that mean we shouldn't have retirement funds? Some of you would be out of business. Some of you, that's what you sell people. No. It's an issue of stewardship. I don't think there's... The Bible never says that you should cease laboring. The total cessation of labor. The objective of life is not to accumulate all you can, move to Florida to die in the sun. Okay, That's not the objective of life. And do nothing but play golf. I mean, that would get pretty boring after a while. Some of you say, nah, I'd like to try it. You know. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So when we get to the, the discussion on lifestyle, that will become more clear. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's the principle. What do you treasure? There's, a, there's a, a, an invisible link between what you treasure and value and your heart. That is your heart and your pocketbook. You move one, you touch one, you touch the other. You, I'll tell you, that's why I shudder to speak on this subject. Because, you know, I'm sitting here ta talking about your pocketbook, guys. And this is not a popular subject. And that's why I like to speak way out of town when I speak on this subject. Because I can get on the airplane and leave. I can say whatever I, I can throw up all over you and leave. I'm getting on an airplane and leave. I don't have to live here with you. Um, but you mess, I'm telling you, you know that in business, don't you? You mess with somebody's money, boy, you've touched the open nerve. Money is an important subject to, to most of Did you realize Jesus talks more about money in the New Testament than any other subject? Why? Because he knew it would be a problem for us. You can't get through a day without money. I mean, I just came back from, from a trip to, to Canada. My daughter's going to school in, in Canada. I mean, you cross the border. What's the first thing you've got to do? Change your money. See, you, you go into a foreign country, you've got to exchange your money. Everything is, and you're constantly converting. Well, see, how much is that in the U.S. and so on? You think about money all the time when you're in that kind of a, a, a foreign culture. But we think about it all the time, even in our culture. You know? Now, back to First Timothy. Those who desire to be rich. Now, guys, uh, we can't just say this doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich and I don't really want, I don't have this inordinate desire. I would say it's really a matter of degrees. It's just simply a matter of degree. To what degree do you desire to be rich? And to what degree are you willing to submit that to a gracious God who wants to root that out of your life and replace it with a trust in his own ability to meet your needs at every stage of your life, right on down to retirement and college education of those kids. 
Gentlemen, I do not know how my kids are going to get through college. But maybe you don't either. But I know what the answer is. I don't know how they're going to get through materially. But I know what the answer is. They're going to get through the same way I've lived for 25 years. For, well, I'm 48 years old. By the grace of God. I don't know where it's going to come from. But God's promised to meet their needs. One of my kids may have to drop out of school. We may have to sell something. Sell the house. I don't know. But somehow, by the grace of God, they'll, they'll get through. This is probably one of the most cost-intensive periods of my life. And it's going to get worse in two years when my second one starts. Um, any, any other questions about this? See, this, the result of the love of money... I want, first, I want to say this to you. Only two things accrue with an increase in wealth. Only these two things accrue to you with an increase in wealth. Increased responsibility and increased accountability. That's all you get. Because the Bible says to those to whom much has been uh, given, much will be required. So the more you have, the more accountable you are. The more you have, the more responsible you are, as you will see in the next section. See, the result of the love of money is the desire for money is insatiable. It's like drinking salt water. Secondly, it's founded on an illusion. Money can't give you love or peace or health like our society would like to tell us it does. It's founded on an illusion. The love of money makes us selfish. The, the men that I personally know who have the most tend to be the most selfish and the most self-centered people I know. There's something that transpires in that, in that increased level, that selfishness. The power that it brings, you know, that you can give it wherever. And the acclaim that comes with it, because our society says those who are wealthy, they give them a, lot, a, a wide berth, and they give them pretty, pretty much all, uh, all the space they want. It lastly produces anxiety and frustration. Trying to either protect what you've got or getting more to meet your anticipated needs is a never-ending quest. We have become a collective donkey chasing the proverbial carrot in our society today. The fourth audience here, those who are seeking the true riches, God's true riches. Verse 11, but as for you, man of God, a pivotal verse. It contrasts what man in his natural state is prone to seek in this temporal world with what God intends for us to seek in relation to his eternal kingdom. But as for you, man of God, don't do this. It reminds me of Matthew 6, 33. But seek first. Don't seek what? Don't seek the meeting of your own needs. He said in Matthew chapter 6. You get down to verse 33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. It's a contrast. And here we are admonished to seek righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. It reminds you of Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Now, guys, let me ask you, do you really believe that those are the true riches? A mark of maturity is when you will come to regard those as the true wealth, not the illusion of the world. True wealth, true goodness is to be found in a relationship to God. So here, this, this audience, this fourth audience, are those who are seeking after 
the true riches of God. Fight the good fight of the faith. And it is a fight, guys. It is, it's a fight. It's a struggle. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life is try to walk with God and live the Christian life and persevere and not give up, not quit. Hardest thing I've ever done. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and so on and so on. Any questions on this one? Let's go to the last audience, number five, and then we'll take our break. Those who are already rich. Now, we already said, who's this? As for the rich in this world, we're all rich. And here is his admonition to those who have increased levels of material resources. Charge them not to be haughty, this translation says. That's pride, proud. Don't become proud. In other words, don't begin to take credit for what God has done. Don't try to claim that you have what you have because you deserve it or because you earned it. Don't, don't become proud. Uh, increased levels of material resources doesn't mean you're any better than in, anybody else. It doesn't mean you're more godly or less godly. It has nothing to do with anything. It has to do only with the, the hand of God and the grace of God in your life. And don't set your hope on riches. That's our problem, is we begin to derive our hope thinking that our security is, is bound up in how much we have. Makes us feel good. <clears throat> Don't set your hope on it. And he comes right out and says, it's uncertain. Riches are uncertain. You got it and then it's gone. You got it and then it's gone. Black Monday should have taught us something, right? About the stock market. You can't hedge your bets. Now we come to verse 18, and once again, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to, to use the couplets to drive home this point. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds. That's a couplet. To do good. You got it? To be rich in good deeds. So the doubling, the couplet effect takes place, again, to help us understand. He's saying one of the marks of those, one of the responsibilities of those who have it is to do good deeds. The second thing he says you're to, to, to do with it is you are to be liberal. And not only liberal, but to be generous. They're synonyms. The couplet is there again. The two main requirements of those who have levels of uh, material gifts, don't be proud, don't set your help on uncertain riches. The emphasis is on uncertain. It's not that dependable. What do you have that's not a gift, 1 Corinthians 4, 7? Why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Do good, be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous. The major responsibility of those to whom God has entrusted large amounts of resources is doing good deeds, that is, actively uh, pursuing, using the resources for the good of others, and secondly, liberality and generosity, the giving of those resources to the extending of God's kingdom. Those are the two main responsibilities of wealth. The purpose of money, someone has said, is to give it away. Not to save it, not to accumulate it, not to hoard it, not to pile it up, but to give it away. That's the purpose of wealth. Any questions on this one? All right. Um, Winston, we take what, 20 minutes? On your outline, we're down to the section which says... <clears throat> the truth. 
if you, as a result of this study or of, of your own study, have realized that you have fallen into some of these pitfalls, the trap, how do you get out? Well, I think we turn our attention now to some principles from Scripture to help us rebuild the erroneous concepts about money and wealth that we've inherited from a godless culture. And I think, first of all, I'd like to uh, review four principles to help us maintain a biblical perspective. These uh, four brief principles, I think, can help us. <clears throat> if we really desire Christ to be Lord of our lives and to give us his perspective on material resources, we need to look to the scriptures. The first principle, and the most important principle, I believe, with respect to this concept of wealth, is, this, is the issue of ownership. The Bible says, number one, <clears throat> that God owns everything. Now, this is literal. I mean, he owns it all. We, I think, tend to think that uh, yeah, God owns the title, but somehow he's transferred that title to us and lets us own it for a little while until we give it back to him. I don't even like to hear people stand up in church and pray, Lord, we give back to you. That's like my daughter uh, coming up and handing me the keys to my car and saying, here, I'd like to give you uh, this car back. Um, what do you mean, give it back to me? You know, I never released it. It's been mine all along, you would say to your, to your child. Uh, it's God's car. We're supposed to realize the same thing with God. It's not mine, it's God's. Everything that we have, many people fall into this mistaken notion that material and natural resources are, are theirs. They all belong to God. It, it, from the very beginning, in the beginning, God created. Where did it all come from? God created it. Genesis 1. And when the Spirit of God invades our lives, he begins to control and change us. Our entire value system is changed to reflect the nature of God, which is to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. And as long as Christ is Lord, his giving character can flow through us. He wants us to be living examples to the materialistic world, that there's a better value system to live by. We've looked at the Matthew 6. 19, 20, 21. Don't lay up treasures in, on earth. Luke 6, 38 would be another verse you could jot down. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. God's nature is to give generously. 